0: Hello, I'm Wilson King, and this is ADD History. Episode 2. In the Beginning. Part 2. The Rise of the Mammals. In the last episode, we covered the 14 billion years between what appears to be the beginning of our observable universe and the apocalyptic end of the dinosaurs on Earth. It may have also been 28 billion years. Who knows? Who cares? This episode, like the one before it and the one after it, are a very different kind than the majority of the episodes of ADD History will be, because they are more about the scientific studies of prehistoric Earth than, you know, history. There's not much of a story in these In the Beginning series of episodes, but there's a lot of interesting information that sets up the stage for the Earth that we know. To start this episode, the metaphor of a phoenix rising from the ashes is pretty fitting, actually. The planet was probably covered in a lot of ashes, from the meteor, volcanoes, and global forest fires, and what was left of the dinosaurs evolved into birds. That works, right? Anyway. Into the Cenozoic Era, the one that we live in, more specifically the Paleocene Epoch, from 66 to 56 million years ago. That word is supposed to be pronounced "epoch," by the way, as in a time period. I will say epoch, though, how it's spelled, to differentiate it from something that you yell when your buddy lands a 42-foot jump on a snowboard. The planet was still very hot and getting hotter, with global average temperatures 20 degrees Fahrenheit hotter than they are today. There were no ice caps, so where there was land at the poles, it was just covered in dense woods, as the large herbivores that used to thin them all out, it all just died, horribly. At the beginning, and throughout this time, there was a lot of volcanic activity, which also produces an astronomical amount of greenhouse effect. That likely contributed to one of the events that this period is known for, the Paleocene-Eocene Thermal Maximum. That's actually pretty much the only thing that this period is known for. This happened around 56 million years ago and is the stuff of Greta Thunberg's nightmares. The polar regions likely experienced temperatures more typical to modern tropical areas, which means equatorial areas were praying for the day that somebody would invent air conditioning. Regardless, the warm conditions everywhere on Earth seemingly made it something of a paradise, really. If you wanted somewhere to vacation with the time machine, this would be a pretty good time to choose as it was lush and tropical everywhere and nothing was big enough to eat you or angry enough to stab you. As for what the global map looked like in the Paleocene of rough 60 million years ago, it was fractured. If you look at a map estimating where all the landmasses were, you'll recognize the continents of today, but they hadn't gotten where they're going. During this time, the Rocky Mountains continued their journey skyward, which probably contributed to the Great Plains emerging from the sea, connecting the two halves of North America. Did I mention that? Yeah, the, the Great Plains of North America were underwater for a while, but they came out of the water around 60 million years ago. Much of Europe appears to have been underwater then, possibly being more of an island chain than a continent. Africa was moving casually from its earlier connection to South America, opening up the South Atlantic Ocean and closing the Indian Ocean. The Indian landmass was moving up from its former connection to Madagascar, probably somewhere in the middle of the Indian Ocean. Imagine that. Antarctica, covered in woods and even jungle, was still connected to Australia. Asia was pretty much where you would expect it to be, but it seems to have been changing shape like a piece of clay being played with by an indecisive child. The animals of this time were small in general, as all of the big creatures of Earth had died out in the horrors of the meteor, volcanoes, and whatever else went on at the time to make life difficult. The little guys made it, though, so Earth was not only warm and globally tropical, but even the scariest predators of the time were basically just cute by the standards of a human-sized perspective. After the mass extinction 66 million years ago, furry, warm-blooded creatures finally had the opportunity to take over the world. Mammals, whose name roughly means boob creature, could now take a walk during the daylight without being immediately eaten by a gigantic lizard. Mammals and birds could now safely go out and fill the roles recently vacated by dinosaurs, and the world was their burrito. Live birth took a while to catch on, which is understandable, and mammals that laid eggs like platypi or platypuses were more common than they are now. Aside from them, many mammals started to look superficially familiar, even if their modern counterparts aren't actually related to them in any way, shape, or form. The early ancestors to primates existed then as well, and our ancestor at the time appears to have been a tree-dwelling creature that looks like a cross between a squirrel and a fox. Somehow that made us. Weird, but okay. Birds, remnants of the dinosaurs, also took advantage of the new openings and things to do with one's life without being eaten. This is my speculation, but I would assume the reason that the dinosaurs who had feathers survived is because the feathers helped insulate them from the cold during that year without the sun. Maybe not, but makes sense to me. Anyway, birds diversified to fill the many niches on the new dinosaur-free Earth. Being a mammal, for what I can only assume is mostly mammalian audience, I won't dwell on them much. I will gloat a bit, though, that the remaining ancestors of the dinosaurs are now at their most impressive, the absurd ostrich, or the beautiful flying creatures that thankfully do not pose much of a threat anymore. Well, ostriches are actually kind of terrifying if you meet one, but whatever. You can ride them, though. That's cool. At 55 million years ago, after 10 million years of the planet getting very hot and the life on it figuring out new ways to exist, the planet reached one of its highest temperatures ever and has been getting colder ever since. This was the beginning of a new epoch. The Eocene, roughly meaning dawn. It would appear that climate scientists are scratching their heads quite a bit trying to figure out the unusual climate at the beginning and middle of the Eocene. The poles were way warmer than seems to make sense given that the tropics were not the temperature of a blast furnace. For example, there were palm trees and other tropical plants growing in Alaska and northern Europe. This might have been because of the ocean currents at the time, which moved around the fractured continents in a way that brought stabilizing warm temperatures everywhere and made everywhere kind of great. I wasn't there, and the scientific understanding of the time is not perfect, because it's a solid forever ago, and how, be, how would we really know? There is an interesting and unlikely hypothesis about this time that the period of extreme global warming may have been caused by an industrial society. Ocean oxygenation levels plummeted, while carbon levels skyrocketed, which is a correlation that we see with modern pollution. However, this idea is a stretch, as whatever advanced society did this would have had to have been extremely careless about its environmental impact. It is far more likely that the sharp spike in carbon levels and global warming was from something like volcanoes or an asteroid of some kind. While it is somewhat possible for industrial pollution to create this much of a spike in temperature, it is extremely unlikely that anything but a global cataclysm could have created such a situation. So, maybe the Global Tiki Party was not a good time, but realistically, it was probably lovely. It's complicated, of course, and this podcast is not about the interesting but often politicized realm of climate science. Still, climate fluctuations have a lot to do with what happens on Earth, especially at the scale of millions of years. This spike of greenhouse effect was very short-lived in the scheme of things, as Earth has a truly incredible ability to balance itself out. With the massive releases of greenhouse gases such as carbon and methane at the end of the Paleocene, biological and natural processes tucked it away for a rainy day. Plants do this all the time, with the help of fungi and bacteria, where they save up valuable carbon in the soil beneath them so that it can be used later to do plant things. That's a very complicated subject, dealing with the soil food web and fungal hyphae, but it's a critical part of the ecosystem then and now. It's worth looking into, as a symbiotic relationship between plants, bacteria, and fungi in our soil really make all the other life possible. And soil is actually way more interesting than you might expect. One interesting alleged event related to all of this involved our old friend the mighty fern, in an aquatic variant this time. These Azolla ferns floated on the Arctic Ocean, which at the time was supposedly around 114 degrees Fahrenheit at the surface, and were able to use the high levels of carbon available to them to grow like crazy. It's pretty strange to think of plants growing directly on the surface of the ocean, but plants in high carbon dioxide environments will basically perform miracles like growing on seawater. Just ask any of your friends who grow weed. Plants love carbon. When they died, they sank into the ocean, taking the carbon with them, which brought stability to the climate, and they possibly did such a good job of it that they strongly contributed to the cooling trend that has been happening in the roughly 48 million years since. All that's to say, ferns really are remarkable, aren't they? It's possible that solar activity had a lot to do with the changes in climate between then and now, too, but that's basically impossible to study, prove, or verify. I am quickly finding out that one could explore the interesting changes in climate during this period for quite a while, but in other news, India finally smashed into Asia, which started to create the Himalayas in the process, which is Earth's tallest current mountain range. In fact, the map of Earth was finally starting to look a lot like it does today, though a lot of places, notably much of Europe, were still underwater. Somehow, Earth had made it all this time without grass, which must have existed to some degree in the Cretaceous because it's been found in dinosaur dung, but apparently grass only really lived on the banks of rivers and lakes until around 40-something million years ago. Personally, I'm astounded by this, and at the moment of writing, I'm questioning everything with the knowledge that the world was somehow without grass for all of that time. From what I'm now understanding, where things could grow, there were woods or swamps, and where there couldn't, there were deserts, which was probably almost nowhere. The levels of carbon in the atmosphere was crazy, and plants grow like wildfire in that kind of situation. Since the world was generally warmer and wetter than it is now, the large areas that are now typical of grassland and steppe were generally forested. Since the planet was making strides towards being colder and drier in the mid to late Eocene, the changes in environment were leading mammals and birds to further diversify and often grow larger brains. Cool. Possibly due to the heat of this time, the new mammals were mostly rather small. Apparently few were larger than 22 pounds. The first true ancestors to horses, elephants, bats, primates, and others appeared during this time, while now-extinct carnivorous creatures affectionately known as bear dogs were quite large and probably pretty dangerous. Other creatures to avoid during this period are the terror birds, giant flightless carnivores that were likely similar in nature to velociraptors, but probably looked a lot more like gigantic murderous chickens. 40 million years later, the joke is on them giant falcons were also likely a serious threat to our distant ancestors of this time. But time marched on, the world got a lot colder, and 34 million years ago, the Ogliocene epoch began. The global tropical tiki party was over, ice sheets were starting to establish over Antarctica, and were beginning to take hold over the Arctic land. It seems unclear exactly what the temperatures were at this time, but it was still much warmer in general than today, with CO2 levels being roughly double what they are now. It is likely that the movement of the continents during this time allowed water to circulate around Antarctica, which may have been a major reason that glaciers started to form there. The ocean currents establishing a stable circle around Antarctica might have been a really big change for the planet's climate as a whole, because ocean currents are a gigantic factor in the climate of different regions. For example, in the modern world, England and eastern Siberia share the same latitude, but it's a lot nicer to spend a winter in England than the equivalent area of Siberia. The vodka is probably better in Siberia, though. You know, homemade. That can lead to a pretty large tangent about meteorology, but in general the winds and ocean currents lead to places like England and western Canada being wet and warm, while areas like eastern Russia and eastern Canada are relatively dry and cold. In the times where land masses were scattered and the ocean currents could just move between the continents at the equator, the stabilizing effect of ocean currents was spread more evenly across the planet. As we move into more recent times, the closing of the passages for the oceans to move around at the equator will be a gigantic factor. Anyway, the beginning of the glaciers at the poles and tectonic activity made sea levels begin to drop. There's an important concept when it comes to sea levels and glaciers called isostatic depression. I won't get deep on it quite yet, but the basic idea is that as ice covers land, sometimes miles thick, its weight displaces the magma under the land, which puffs out the coastlines. This concept will be mentioned a lot in our timeline between 20 million years ago and about 10,000 years ago. For now, it means that areas of shallow coast were literally rising out of the sea as the magma filled the areas under them. The tropical forests and jungles that seem to have been common basically everywhere during the previous epoch were now becoming temperate, and many areas were then becoming grasslands and even tundras. I remain stupefied that grass being everywhere is such a recent development, but by 25 million years ago or so, it was starting to become pretty common as it is now. Land creatures adapted to this development, and many of the creatures one might picture running around and grazing in grasslands, such as like horse-type creatures, started to adapt to that lifestyle around then. It is with great joy that I can announce the first felines appearing in Asia around then as well. I love cats, and uh, if you don't, you're racist. There were plenty of rhino-like creatures, and many of the other various mammal groups we know today were pretty firmly in existence by the end of this period, 23 million years ago. The Miocene period, starting 23 million years ago, roughly started with another warming trend, and the short-lived glaciers of Antarctica returned to the water cycle for a couple million years. The Arabian Peninsula, connected as always to Africa, finally collided with Asia, closing the waterway between the Mediterranean and the Indian Ocean. This allowed for the elephant ancestors of the time to enter Asia. The only part of the map that was really missing compared to today was the connection between North America and South America, Though islands were beginning to form between the modern Yucatan and Colombia. Grasslands were really coming into full swing, and the grazing herd animals being chased by swift predators that we love to watch on television were now common on most continents. Though many species have since gone extinct, well, all of them are basically extinct at this point, canines, felines, bears, and pretty much all of the types of creatures that we share the world with now existed then in their ancestral forms. That's all wonderful, but this is also the time where primates really become a thing. Fossils, of anything, are pretty hard to come by, but creatures like apes are the sort that are least likely to end up being fossilized in a swamp, because swamps are unpleasant places for primates to hang out. Regardless, they were all over Asia and Africa, in many shapes and sizes, and the ancestors of upright walking great apes like humans seem to have broken off from chimpanzees between 13 and 18 million years ago. Around 14 million years ago, the climate got much colder and kept trending in that direction. The ice sheets returned to Antarctica and parts of Greenland. While still much warmer than now, the world started to move towards a series of deepening ice ages, and the colder temperatures led to the extinction of many creatures. Eight million years ago, there was another sudden temperature drop, and the Antarctic ice sheet probably reached its present size, but it didn't stop there as the world continued to grow colder. Late in this period, between 6 and 8 million years ago, the Mediterranean Sea closed up to the Atlantic and almost completely evaporated, though it opened back up around 5 million years ago at the Strait of Gibraltar, resulting in what must have been a pretty dramatic flood. A little more than 5 million years ago, the Pliocene epoch started, and it was during this time that the world started to have real ice ages. With average temperatures 2 or 3 degrees warmer than now, and similar carbon dioxide levels in the atmosphere, sea levels started at 75 feet higher than present, and dropped as the water slowly deposited in ice sheets at the poles. Again, the geological concept of isostatic depression is at play, like a bowling ball on a waterbed, but the bed is tectonic plates and the water is magma. The continuing drop in temperatures likely had something to do with the Americas finally connecting around 3.5 million years ago, which cut off the transfer of warm equatorial waters between the Pacific and Atlantic Oceans. This probably changed the climate dramatically, making the world much more seasonal, with temperate areas experiencing the relatively colder winters and warmer summers that we are used to now, because it's been like that ever since. Forests receded and were replaced by grasslands in these harsher new conditions, and life, as always, adapted or died out. All of today's animal lineages were on the stage, and giant megafauna like mastodons and other elephant-esque creatures populated most continents aside from frozen Antarctica and forever-weird Australia. Australia had its own version of elephants, though, which I will lovingly detail later. Hyenas, giraffes, and saber-toothed cats appeared, along with some lion-sized carnivorous otters in Africa that I had never heard of before. They're extinct now, obviously, but they sound very charming. They're cute like bears, you know, not squirrels. The connection of the Americas led to a lot of survival of the fittest competitions between the creatures of the long-separated continents. That worked out great for some, and terribly for others. When competition is making the grass grow green, it is a bad time to be a yellow grass. Primates kept proliferating, and around 4.2 million years ago, Australopithecus, a likely human ancestor, appeared in Kenya alongside other similar species. Evidence of them is pretty sparse, a few bone and skull fragments and some teeth, but the skull resembles a chimpanzee while the teeth resemble modern humans. This is important because a lot can be learned about a fossilized creature from its teeth as the shape of the teeth makes diet pretty easy to guess, and therefore the lifestyle can be extrapolated. Most creatures spend a lot of time chewing, and that's why if you have dreams about your teeth falling out, you need a vacation. With the jungles of Africa turning into open savanna during this time, walking upright starts to make more sense than keeping limbs adapted for climbing trees. We have some cousins that stayed in the trees, but it sadly has not been a winning strategy for them. Australopithecus had teeth similar to modern humans, and evidence appears to show that they were mostly upright walking creatures, which, again, makes them pretty likely candidates for human ancestors. We'll really dive into that in the next episode. To briefly return our focus to space, however, there is some discussion of one or more stars exploding in our rough neighborhood between 10 to 20 million years ago, or as recently as 2 million years ago. It's not exactly an event that one can easily put a date on, and I'd be willing to speculate it could have even happened more recently. I am also willing to speculate that the star of which exploded may have been Sirius B, which is pretty close to us. This explosion was close enough to have possibly damaged the ozone layer, and changed the situation on Earth in many ways that we do or do not understand. The evidence of this is a quote-unquote local bubble, where there is a lower concentration of free space gases. As in, there's an explosion, and like, you know, all the gases just keep getting, you know, they, they explode away. You get what I'm saying? Anyway. Our solar system, and much of the stellar neighborhood, is in this gigantic space bubble. Space is the great unknown throughout the story of life on Earth. It occasionally visits chaos on our beautiful blue planet throughout time in ways that range from hard to disprove to nobody ever really considered it. As human understanding of our universe grows, we will probably find the larger forces of the universe have more of an effect on our world than is obvious to us right now. Score one for the astrology people, right? It's hard to know if that star explosion happened at all, though, or really anything I've brought up in these first couple episodes. It all seems logical enough to me, I haven't thoroughly covered how all this information was gathered and interpreted, but it mostly seems to make sense. Still, if I went to some random time millions of years ago and the world looked nothing like how we think it should, it really wouldn't surprise me at all. All I do know is that the more I know, the more I know that I know nothing. I do know that there are people that know a lot more about me about the specifics about all of this, like paleontologists and astrophysicists and the like, and they often will be the first to tell you that they really have no idea what was going on way back then. These people might not totally appreciate me characterizing their field of study as largely guesswork, but they would admit the same thing in other words. I think they would prefer the term extrapolation. Anyway, the Pleistocene Epoch started around 2.58 million years ago. That roughly translates to most new, though it's not the epoch that we live in now. The name is fitting, though, because it's recent, so it's the easiest prehistoric time to get a grasp of, and when humans and their cousins start to become pretty modern. Because this is a time that is really way more relevant than the previous periods, I'm going to use the remaining time of this episode to explain this period in more detail and set the stage for the next one that focuses more on the wildly interesting rise of the humans. For full disclosure, as most of my friends could tell you, I am completely obsessed with this period of time. Oh my god, it is so fucking cool. At this time, the world was cold. Really, really cold. It is, of course, more complicated than that. For those who trade or observe stocks, there's a concept about graphs called bouncing. This describes when you look at a graph which goes up or down on the y-axis for value against time on the x-axis. This concept is often referenced in stock trading, where a stock hits a low point called a bottom, then bounces up, then down, like one of those fun bouncy balls that you might have played with as a child. This stock can't go lower, in theory, because it's at the lowest value it can possibly be in relation to its actual value. In theory, it's a good time to buy that stock, because it supposedly can only go up from there, unless the CEO just quit doing cocaine. That's not the point, though, and I'm not suddenly transitioning into a finance podcast three quarters of the way through an episode. On climate graphs of the Pleistocene, the temperature bounces, creating a graph that looks kind of like a sawtooth. It gets really cold, then warms up, then a little more really cold, and on and on. This was as cold as Earth could really get with life on it, because multicellular life is pretty good at stabilizing the climate in a lot of ways. This was the Ice Age, which really is a series of many ever colder ice ages that apparently happen on a 42,000 year cycle, later getting more extreme on a 100,000 year cycle. Every cycle, the ice sheet grew. By the time of 13,000 years ago, the glaciers were on the American side of the Canadian border across the west, dipping south to Iowa and even the northern tip of Kentucky. Where I am in Vermont, there were up to three miles of ice over the place that I sit. Yeah, these sheets of ice were miles deep, covering smaller mountains like a foot of snow covers a frozen footprint in the mud. England and Poland were under ice, along with a pretty large portion of Russia. In the south, one could walk from Argentina to the South Pole on the ice, and it's plausible that you could shiver all the way up to Australia. I'm guessing it wasn't strange for it to snow in what is now Florida. In relative terms, Florida was way closer to the glaciers than I am to glaciers in modern Vermont, though that doesn't really mean that Florida was anywhere near as cold as modern Vermont. It might have been, though. Earth was really cold then. While the ice made Earth a snowball on top and bottom, the map actually looked how it should from our perspective. The plates have moved, at most, 62 miles since then, but who cares? You know, close enough, right? Still, it wasn't quite right, because every landmass looked like it had been stress-eating and had gained some weight. The sea levels were 400 feet lower than we know them now, with much of the water trapped in ice, and the weight of all of that ice actually put enough force on the semi-liquid mantle of the Earth that it filled out the coastlines. Again, that's isostatic depression, which I keep talking about. Like pressing your hand on the middle of your favorite person's stomach and watching the sides of their belly poof out. Unless they have, like, crazy abs, but, you know, who has the time? Anyway, it's pretty wild how much of the coast of Earth was land if you lower the sea levels 400 feet, then feed the land nothing but beer and Twinkies for a couple million years. Indonesia was a full-on chunk of Asia instead of an island chain, and Florida, often thought to be America's penis, was girthier. That childish characterization of geology goes out to my dear departed friend Duffy. I miss you, buddy. Supposedly, around 6 million square miles that are now underwater were land then. That's about the area of Europe and China put together. Regardless, it's hard to tell exactly how much of the coastal ground was exposed, but anywhere that you can think of that's next to water, imagine the water four or five semi-trucks stacked end-to-end lower. It's a length of one and a third football fields to vertical drop, which could mean that the beach is many, even hundreds of miles away from where it is now. I'm American, so I apologize for measuring everything in trucks and football fields. Still, picture whatever beach you know, but it's so far away from the coast that people that live there actually consider themselves to be in the hills. These low sea levels and ice bridges also meant that you could just walk from Siberia to America, which will be important in the next episode when we're discussing early humanity. Anyway, the world in this time is epic. It's epic like Gandalf showing up at the first light on the fifth day at Helm's Deep. Time's Leonidas and 300 Spartans storming the beach at Normandy while Led Zeppelin plays Stairway to Heaven with Jesus, Buddha, and Muhammad singing lead vocals. I could go on, but you get the idea. Giant herds of woolly mammoths grazed around the northern tundras of Earth, and saber-toothed tigers hunted across the New World. In the Americas, there were gigantic ground sloths that were 10 feet long, eating leaves, and hopefully as lovably carefree as their modern tree-dwelling cousins. They probably were not, though, because all of the predators were supersized then as well. Saber-toothed tigers could be up to 900 pounds, though they were generally smaller. We don't know if they were solitary creatures like modern cats or pack hunters like modern wolves, but there's a pretty good chance that they had all those gigantic dagger teeth so that they could kill gigantic creatures like mammoths and the occasional ground sloth. Now, we don't know much about the saber-toothed tigers, but in addition to their terrifying presence, there were short-faced bears, which were bears, but way bigger, presumably with a shorter snout. I've personally interacted with wild black bears, who I share territory with. On the unlucky occasions that I've been within 30 feet of them, it becomes very clear that they could kill a modern human who isn't wielding a modern weapon, casually. Grizzly bears are even larger and more threatening, and the short-faced bears of a million years ago put them to shame. They weighed a little less than a ton, almost as much as a small car. To put that simply, they were huge, and probably wouldn't consider five humans with spears much of a threat. In Australia, there were marsupials called diprotodon, which were the size of an elephant, with a similar herd lifestyle and herbivore diet, but they carried their young in a pouch like a gigantic wombat. In a way, that makes diprotodon an Australian-style elephant, a creature that evolved to the same size and lifestyle as the pachyderms of other continents filling the same ecological role in a uniquely Australian way. That's very Australian of them. This is an example of the concept of convergent evolution. This idea is that animals who have almost no relation to each other in geographically distant but environmentally similar areas often will evolve to be fairly similar to fill the same niche. Taken to its logical extreme, this idea would lead to the concept that a distant planet that is similar to Earth with a magnetic field, a nitrogen-oxygen atmosphere, and carbon-based life might be populated by creatures that would look pretty similar to those on Earth. You know, if you're going to be a whale, like, there's one shape that works for being a whale. So you're probably going to be shaped like that. That's an off-topic point, though I could go on about it for a while, because I've watched way too much Star Trek. I could also go on for hours about the wacky, gigantic creatures we now call megafauna that populated the world at this time. They were amazing, and humans just like us shared the world with them until something crazy happened around 12,000 years ago. That's going to be covered in another episode, because there were definitely modern humans who lived through that cataclysmic time. The important point is that the environment of the Pleistocene that humans were really born into is a harsh and unforgiving time. It was a cold time for Earth, and the animals we shared the world with at the time were gigantic and probably posed a serious threat to our primitive ancestors. Earth of about a million years ago was enduring the Ice Ages, covered in both strange and familiar creatures, and was alien but charmingly familiar to those of us who live on Earth now. It has been through a lot, so let's refresh ourselves on how we got to this point. Earth started with a billion years of hostile lifelessness, until the planet formed a magnetic field. Then Earth spent about 3 billion years being covered in single-celled life forms like a block of cheese that was left out for too long. Then it was populated at sea and soon land by what are essentially gigantic bugs who died out, then gigantic lizards who died out, and finally us and the creatures we share it with now, who are hopefully not dying out. It was quite a journey to a million years ago, and it arguably gets a lot more interesting when humans take over. But that's because we are very self-serving creatures. The moral of this story is adaptation. The conditions of living change constantly in more ways than the creature experiencing it can fully understand. Evolution and adaptation are so built into life that every choice in a creature's mind and every hair on their body is constantly tuning that creature to thrive in the environment that they're living in. Well, hopefully. Not every creature makes it and everything has to change to survive. That is, unless they are horseshoe crabs or ferns, who were created perfect on the first day. For the rest of us, changing with the times is a constant battle to prevent being adapted for a world that no longer exists. It makes perfect sense, even when it's pretty unfair. Regardless of any previous personal knowledge I had on any of these subjects, it was quite an undertaking to compile and compact the story of Earth before humans into two rough half-hours. I am not stubbornly attached to the idea that anything in this narrative is the absolute truth, and I am personally quite sure that at least a couple points in our limited understanding of the prehistoric world happened in wildly different ways than we think. I learned a lot, though, and I invite any who found these prehuman times interesting to go ahead and study it more, as I left out a lot of the details so I could get one step closer to the part of history where people were actually writing shit down. There is still a lot to cover before then, though as our next story is The Epic Rise of the Humans.